Hello and welcome to another episode of Bridging the Gap. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to spend it with us here on Bridging the Gap, where we're looking to bridge the gap between where the industry of wealth management is today and, and where it's going. And today, I was really fortunate to have Josh Nelson on the podcast, who is one of those that works and serves individual families inside this industry. And these conversations to me are always so intriguing because we are all doing very similar things of serving families and helping them reach their financial goals. But we all take slightly different approaches to it. And we view our own why of what we're trying to do and the way that we want to go about doing it in slightly different ways. And in today's podcast with Josh, we talk about everything from how he works on, you know, he has his own podcast, how he grows in markets. We talk about some of the trends that are happening within the space and how he views those shaping out. And then we talk about why advisors are going to be forced to change. And what we figure out in this podcast is that it's actually maybe not going to change for everybody. Two separate buckets. But Josh is an amazing uh, resource. He has an amazing story of how he got here and has great insight that we can all learn from to progress. So enough of me. Let's turn it over to the conversation that I had today with Josh Nelson. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Josh Nelson, thanks for joining us on Bridging the Gap. How's everything going with you? How's life? How's family? Everybody safe and well? What's going on on your side of the world? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every, everything is going great. Uh, family, my actually my youngest uh, daughter, she just turned one here a couple weeks ago. Everybody's happy and healthy and just got my second vaccine shot the other day. And it, it kind of knocked me off my feet too for a whole like 24 hours. People kind of told me that before, but the nice thing about it is I woke up today and I feel awesome. So there you go. You got, you have, there's a light at the end of the tunnel for you and, and you're, you're going to need it because a one-year-old is going to keep you on your toes. I'm sure. Is that, is that your first or do you have uh, other kids as well? That's actually number five. Five. Oh <laughs> yes. man. You've got a basketball team. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so I guess for those that only have maybe one or two or maybe expecting, what's the secret to uh, managing kids then? You know it. You've got five of them. You've done it before. Yeah, secret to managing kids, I think, is is just to not have not to be so strict and rigid. Uh, I think you naturally are with your first kid. Everybody's just scared, nervous about what to do. You don't really even know how to change diapers, but after a while, you, you figure out. All right, you've got to let some stuff go, and the, I think the looser you can play it, the better off you'll be. So, but I, I think just enjoying the time though, it goes so fast. It's just goes ridiculously fast. I, I can't even believe she's already a year and moving around and talking and all that stuff. The the question I asked was pretty selfish because I I mean I have a two year old. He's turning two, and it does go quick. And and I I think that your advice is spot on because we're expecting our second here in the fall, which is exciting. But I can see myself already starting to loosen up on on my first, and I can see that's going to bleed into the second. And I'm a youngest and. I think that that's why the youngest are always really the best, in my opinion, because I'm a youngest sibling. And I think that because our parents are just looser on us, that we just evolve better than the older kids. I, think, I think that's, that's absolutely that's true. Fun. I've got two older siblings. <laughs> I was the youngest. And yeah, my parents, I, I think you just get tired. I think your parents just get tired after a while and they're like, all right, whatever. And so they were actually pretty, pretty loose with me. I think they were much, much stricter with my brother and sister. It has also caused a lot of mental issues for myself because it makes me feel like they don't care about me, but they really do. <laughs> but it just allowed me to grow to who I am. But I think that that's great parenting advice. And I think that it's valuable for anybody out there as well. But let's get into kind of the root of, of why you're on here. I mean, you're one of the best advisors out there and you, you know, you are forward thinking and innovator. I'm just so curious to, to hear your story. And so why don't you share with our, our listener base 
you know, your background, where you came from, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the aspects of your practice that I think is so interesting. Sure. And thank you for the kind words. And, and thank you for having me on the show too. It's, I, I think it's always fun to have these conversations. And yeah, especially for people that are really still in this business to challenge themselves and help people. And it's not to say that everybody doesn't have good intentions, but I think a lot of people, they, they just get to a certain size of their business and stuff. And they say, all right, I'm going to go play golf now. So you and I are not in that camp. Not to say we don't like golf, but you know, we, we still are in it to challenge ourselves and grow. As far as background, yeah, I started as an advisor pretty much right out of college. I knew this is what I wanted to do. And at that point, it was pretty hard. This is back in 99, so start dating myself. But it was tough because you know a lot of people didn't want to hire a 22-year-old um, because you stick them in front of people and they're, they're only friends or people that are their age that don't have any money. So I actually struggled with that a little bit. Went to a couple of wirehouse firms and did interviews and they said, you know what? You're a great guy. We just don't think you're going to make it. <laughs> you don't know enough people that are older that have money. And I was lucky enough that, that one of those guys though, he was actually really kind and said, you know what? I've got a friend who, who he's, a, he's the head of this investment program that's in a bank. And I think that could be a really good fit for you. And, and he was right. So that was actually my, my start is that I got started there for about a year and a half. This is going into 2001. The market was terrible and everything and, and things were drying up. And I, I was fortunate enough to get a headhunter call. And back then I, I was just myself. I didn't have a staff. I didn't have an assistant, anything like that. And so I answered the phone on every call and I got a headhunter call. And they said, well, I don't know if you have an assistant or other people that be looking at kind of opportunities to move up in the industry. We have this role that's going to be this advisor role at this credit union program. And it was at HP back in the day, I Hewlett Packard. And I said, well, no, we don't have any other staff, but I might be interested. And so I, I actually kind of went through their process and, and figured out that it was kind of the perfect timing because it was an advisor that wanted out of the business. And they were smart enough in their program. They were smart enough that they had a way that people could get out and sell their book basically to somebody else. So that's what I did is I actually bought his book and paid him off over a number of years and then used that to kind of launch my career and, and make myself that, that niche, right? Make that my specialty is dealing with high-tech employees and managing their equity awards, managing their 401ks, uh, all the wealth that they were building up at their company. It started off with HP and now it's a bunch of different tech companies, but 99% of our clients, that's where they either work or they came from was through the tech sector. That's amazing. What a story. I mean, everybody has their own journey to get to where they are and and the kind of the start of their career. And, you know, I always I always think that it's good motivation when people tell you that the that you're, you know, it's not gonna be good enough. And then you have something to kind of go and show them. But you, you know, you mentioned it a little bit in in terms of what the the purpose of an advisor is, right? The, the purpose is to kind of do good and help people out. That's why we get into this industry. But what is your, and I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek and, you know, he started the kind of the theme of, you know, what is your why and understanding your why, you know, and, and mine is to, to create an impact beyond my, my own, my own life. Right. And I think that starting businesses and everything of that nature can help me to do that because I can create an impact on other people's lives and I can change people's lives. And that means it's beyond just me and, and beyond my lifetime. And so for you, what is your why in the business or, or what's your why that you strive for? Yeah, I, I think ultimately um, it's to help people. I mean, to, to kind of put it in the simplest terms is to, to contribute. And the nice thing about our industry is that we can actually make a very good living 
you know, and grow ourselves and be able to help other people because we're adding massive value to their situation for the people who who see what we're doing in their life and the, the decisions that we help them make over time just adds an enormous amount of value. So that's really why I think I'm in the industry and, and it kind of went back and this is not a lie. This is actually a true story that when I was three, four years old, I actually, they have pictures of this too, I'll have to post them sometime, but they have pictures of me. My favorite thing to do as a kid was to actually dress up in a suit and go to the office. And I did. I, I had this little office set up in the basement and it had you know typewriters and office supplies and things like that. So my, my parents encouraged it. That was good. Uh, so they, they encouraged this, but that was my favorite thing to do. And the funny thing is, I kind of forgot about that for a number of years. And once in a while, my siblings would be uh, reminding me of that. And of course they do now for sure, because, well, that's what I do is I go to an office and I help people. And that's what I did back then too, with my imaginary <laughs> customers. I even had a cash register back then too, right? So I was helping people with their money. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom uh, got me interested in stocks. Then, uh, in, in fact, when I started my lawn mowing business and paper out business, then she instilled in me pretty early on. It's like, hey, you can't spend all that money. You need to invest part of it. And so she helped me buy Coca-Cola stock and some McDonald's stock at the time. And my dad was a good financial role model too. He was the debt hawk. Um, he just said, no, you got to get all your debt paid off quickly. And so yeah, he, pay, he paid his mortgage off, like a 30-year mortgage. He paid it off in seven, eight years just because they were just intense you know, about knocking it out. And then my mom was the investment guru. So I kind of got it from both sides. They they say that the uh, the smartest people surround themselves with people that are smarter than than them, and you were fortunate to have the the surroundings of of amazing influ influencers and impacts on your life, which is just incredible. I love that, and and I think that that's something. I think that that's something also that you know we can all learn, right? And, and this is kind of the financial literacy aspect that that's going on in our industry, and in, in the world is you know how do we help younger generations understand how to save? And I think it does start at home a lot, and. I love that idea. I'm such a big believer of like of helping your kids buy their first stock. There's a company here that I, I know really well in Atlanta called Greenlight Technology, Greenlight Financial, and I love what they're doing. They're doing you know debit cards for kids, and mm -hmm. they also have started a initiative for them to be able to buy start buying stocks to help solve this financial literacy challenge. You know that's something. How do you help your clients help their kids understand that? Right? Do you give that advice? Help open a brokerage account and have them buy a stock of you know, Disney or Coca-Cola or Home Depot or something like that, that they go and see and, and feel in touch during the day. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I tell people. And we do this at home too. I think it does have to start at home, right? It, it, it starts with getting on the same page with your spouse on financial stuff and then making sure that, you know, not that you have to share all the dollar amounts and things like that, but making sure the kids hear those conversations uh, because they listen, whether you think that they do or not, they, they do listen to that. So that makes a big difference uh, talking about debt and investments and things like that. But I, I think for other people, just making sure that that's a constant conversation. It's not just something you can just sit down and do once. It's a constant conversation. And you know, then trying to cultivate it. The one thing that we've done with our kids is we have a, there's a company called Busy Kid and they do something similar, I think, is that they've got this little debit card and you can put their chore money on it. Yeah, they have to log in, they have to log their chores, what they did, and you set the amounts and everything and they get a payday every week. And one of the options inside that program is that you can buy stock. And so it's been interesting to do that with them is, is to kind of, and going back to my mom, my mom had to do it through a traditional stockbroker back in the day, but you know, through programs like this and Greenlight, it's just so easy. And in most cases, free or close to free to be able to do it for them.
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think if you're listening and you're trying to think about the busy kids is a great one. Greenlight technology, Greenlight Financial is an amazing company. I, uh, I know the co-founders pretty well and they're just great. And it just, it helps to set the standard for, for kids, I think in that standpoint, but you know, I didn't plan for this, right? Let, let me just plan for this of the idea that we're going to have someone on here that has a similar mentality in regards to how they talk about their, their business. You know, we named this podcast, Bridging the Gap on the idea of bridging the gap between where we are as an industry today and, and where, where we're going to be in the future to help people kind of take those incremental steps towards being the financial firm of the future and, and not letting the future take them apart. And you talk about something like this on your website, and we did not plan this. You have the idea on your website, and you talk about it all throughout your kind of your firm. I think it's like in your DNA is it bridging is. the gap between knowing and doing in the financial lives of our clients. And I love that, not just because it's the name of this podcast and how it makes so much sense with this conversation, but just in general. Can you tell us a little bit more what that means and, and how you actually put this concept into action? Yeah, I, I think where we came up with the mission originally is just trying to boil it down to what it is that we do, like what really is the value of what we do. And it's not that we provide information or secret information that's not out there. I, I think you know we well know that any piece of financial information that's ever existed in humanity is available at your fingertips for free. So the days of going to a, a stockbroker or something like that because they had special information or inside knowledge or something like that is not there. But yet we're finding that there's this huge gap in people's financial lives as far as where they where they are right now, where they want to be. And I think intellectually, a lot of people know the principles that we teach as far as you know, fundamentally getting cash from the bank and paying debt down and just getting that foundation set, but also building wealth and, and what the principles are that, that really lead to a good diversified portfolio, doing the math, figuring out how much money do we need to set aside and what vehicles, you know, all the complexities of the financial world. We handle the how, the the details of how all that happens. But in a lot of cases, I, I think people actually have good intentions. It's not that people don't want to be financially successful, but they just get caught up. People get caught up in the day-to-day -day stuff and they get busy and they think, well, you know, someday, you know, I'll get my financial life in order. And someday, and unfortunately, someday often doesn't come for many people. They end up retiring. And if they're successful, it was just by accident. They, they were just kind of lucky that they ended up there. And of course, we know the statistics that a good third of the population that is retired doesn't have a whole lot. They're just living on Social Security. And although that'll keep people from starving to death, that was why Social Security was originally instituted. But it's not going to lead to a, a very fulfilling retirement, at least being able to do what a lot of people dream of. I, I think being able to, to go uh, help their grandkids and go travel. You know, simple things that even go beyond your normal monthly living expenses. We've got clients that one of the special things that they do is that they take each they take each one of their grandkids, and they've got a bunch of grandkids, but they take each one of their grandkids on a international trip. And they let them plan it and everything, and it's like what a cool opportunity not only to be able to speak into their lives because they get to be part of the planning process and they they talk about the fact that here's how we built up wealth and here's how we save for retirement and everything so we can do things like that. But really investing in memories. I, I think investing in memories is one of the best investments possible that we can make. And certainly you having kids know that. It's it's mm -hmm. pretty crazy the, the amount of uh, how fast time goes. And when you talk to older folks, 
they really look back and say, you know, it's some of those best memories or those years that seem stressful when things were crazy and you had kids up in the night and, or you had a little bit older kids and they were running five different directions to soccer games, things like that. They say those were the best years that those were our best times. So I, I think just the impact that we can have on people's lives, it's amazing through the financial planning process. It, it's all about experiences, right? The experiential aspect of it. And it's becoming more and more like that to where advisors are becoming these life coaches to help, you know, we're, what we're doing is we're helping them save to get those experiences. Right. And, that, and I think that that's the biggest aspect of it because, you know, as you get older, they become, you cherish them more and more. And that's what our clients really want, right? That's the value we do. They, that, you know, I think that if we can start as an industry and I, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this, right? How do we shift the conversation? I think you're trying to do that with this bridging the gap mentality is how do you shift the conversation from being all about how did my portfolio do to how many experiences did I actually take in or act on this year, right? And, and if we can focus on that, then I think the idea of getting people and motivating people to save and, and to grow wealth and to understand is where it's all about. And that kind of levels it out from being like, is it up or is it down? But I actually continue to have three experiences every year, no matter what the market did. And that's the ultimate goal that we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really starting the conversation with asking the right questions. I'm convinced that that's actually one of the highest value things that we can do as financial planners, financial advisors is ask the right questions because that can completely reframe how people think about their money. And whether we like it or not, money is a very emotional topic. I, I think that's a lot of times what pe gets people in trouble. And I think a lot of people are smart enough to realize that too. And that's why they hire us to begin with is they they realize that, you know what, I could get in my own way here. In fact, there's a pretty high likelihood that I'm going to get in my own way if I don't hire somebody who's really good that's acting in my best interest. So yep. I think that's where a lot of people see the value in us is that we truly are their advocate. You know, we're somebody who's walking, walking alongside them. We want the best for them. We want the best for their family. If something happens to them, we want the best for their spouse, their kids. So through the whole financial planning process, I, I think for people who get that, they understand how much value there is. And they also understand the value of time. And as people's incomes go up, as their wealth accumulates, people start to resonate with that. You know what? My scarcest commodity right now is not money. My scarcest commodity yep. is time. And so I'm going to start paying some other people to do things. And of course, you can pay people to clean your house and things like that. But when it comes to financial advice, especially for people who aren't passionate about this like we are, they, they just don't want to spend the time doing this. They would rather go play golf or spend time with their kids or do something else. And so they realize that it's a time thing too. It, it's the fact that I'm not passionate about this. I know I'm smart enough. I know all the information's out there, but I know enough here that I'd be better off using the fiduciary. Yep. And that, I mean, that's the same way why we don't build our own houses, right? Or we don't do certain things, why we put, call in contractors to help us build out a new room, right? We could go and figure out how to do it. We're all very intelligent to be able to do it. The The resources are there, but we're just not going to go do it. And that's why we bring someone else in. And I, I you know, you know, speaking of getting in our own way, right? Not to just do a, a shameless plug here, but that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book that's coming out the summer of 2021 is about the emotional, psychological barriers that advisors, that's why advisors are so or helpful, right? Is that's the power in what we do as our profession is helping to be that, that steward, that fiduciary, the guider to help people ne negotiate with their emotions and overcome them. And I think it's so powerful. But, you know, in this industry, right? When you think about the industry, you know, we all want to help to serve more and more people, right? We want to impact more lives. We want to create more experiences. 
But this industry is going through a lot of innovation as well. And there's a lot of changes from a technological standpoint to the ultimate, which will eventually happen, has been talked about happening, shift in wealth from the baby boomers to the next gen. What are you seeing as the biggest challenge that you are facing as a firm today? It's a good question. I, I think one of the most common challenges when I think about really what are my biggest challenges, one of those is time and having the time to think and just stop and think and strategize really as far as you know, really just taking the time to to journal, just to write and and read. You, you think about somebody like Warren Buffett, who I, I think he turned 90 now and still goes to work pretty much every day. But he talks about that, that that's pretty much all I do is I, I read and I think. So I think that's instructor for all of us. He's a pretty successful guy and still does that after decades of of doing that. That's really where a lot of Berkshire Hathaway was built. A lot of investment ideas were built because he sat and read through the paper financial reports of these companies. So ultimately, I, I think when I when I think about challenge, I think it's about thinking about really taking the time to to not just do what we're doing. I'm um, asking the right questions. So a lot of it does come down to that to make us think a different way. And you know, ultimately, I think the other side of it too is the challenge of that next generation of advisors coming in, and the fact that this is an aging industry. And the last statistic I saw is the average financial advisor is 58. And although the age of 58 is not old, an average of 58 is quite old. And you know we keep hearing this, that there are, there's a shortage of young people coming into the industry. You know, what we're finding is there's a lot of opportunity with millennials, with Gen Z, people that actually have their careers going, making a lot of money, um, actually wanting to be very, very financially responsible. So I think it's encouraging and finding the right people who want to be those next planners for our profession. Yeah, this and this idea of, I think that the next gen provides an opportunity both from new clients and from growth of a firm in the sense of employees. But I think that the, the, the point you made about time and thinking is a challenge for everybody in this world these days, right? I think if you look at the, the pandemic and one of the silver linings is that it, it was a, a constant force on us to slow down and simplify our lives. And I think that the challenge in, in in my mind of not stopping and thinking like you're saying is that we just continue to get stuck in this rut of just doing. And we're not ever finding a way to better our firm or to create a better strategy, not even just from an investment philosophy, but also from an operational philosophy to a technological adoption or innovation or any of that. And we always say, well, we just got so much to do and it's all about the clients. And it's hard to break away because it is all about the clients, but the, the impact, there's not a direct ROI of thinking to helping your clients, but there is a, uh, you know, a tangent, a tangential ROI from that. How do you go about overcoming the barriers of finding time? I mean, have you been able to find any aspects of things that small little tidbits that work? Because I heard that Buffett reads like a thousand pages a week. If I had to read a thousand pages a week, I, I don't, I'm a slow reader in the first place. So it'd take me a long time to read a thousand pages. But have you found any nuggets to help with that? Yeah, I think reading consistently. And I have taken that to heart because because of Buffett that I read consistently every day and not just the newspaper. I, I actually make sure that that's a book, spending some time taking 10 minutes at least and reading a nonfiction book. It doesn't have to be about our industry. And you mentioned Simon Sinek before, you know, a lot of people that are just a general great business books to read. Uh, or Audible, and that that counts. Some people say, well, that doesn't count. I think it counts <laughs> to, to listen to a book that way. But I, I think it's just having some consistency around it because that, that knowledge does accumulate. But then along the same token, I think taking the, the time to think. And I like journaling just because 
sometimes it really helps, I find, to get it out of my head and get it on paper and actually writing, like handwriting. They say, you know, in psychology, they say that it actually will lead to greater retention too. That hand to paper makes a bigger difference than typing it as well. So I actually do have a paper journal that I write in each day. And one thing I adopted from Keith Cunningham, he's a great business strategist, but one thing I adopted from him is the concept of thinking time and actually taking a set amount of time, setting a timer. So it takes discipline, clearly, because in these days we're so busy and running around and everything, but taking the time, actually setting a timer for 10, 15, 20 minutes and coming up with a question or two that you're having a challenge with, whether it be your business, your life, could be anything, but actually taking the time to write down those one or two questions and then just free write on those. And it could be all the different solutions that could come up with those different, those different questions or challenges. But it's interesting what comes out of those. Sometimes it's complete garbage and that's fine. So you can eliminate that. But sometimes the ideas I've gotten and the solutions just suddenly present themselves. And it's just kind of a miracle in some cases. I've had my team do this as well. We've actually done the thinking time exercise a few times. And it's really interesting to see versus just kind of popcorn style writing things on a whiteboard. It's interesting when everybody kind of journals on their own, then brings those ideas together, what kind of solutions come up. Do you have a standard set of questions that you use every time? Or do you rethink of the questions during every thinking time? Do you have to think of the questions of what the challenges you're faced for the day? It's Yeah, it's always different questions. And and it is a plug for Keith Cunningham. I don't work for him, by the way, but he's, he's just really good at this in that he, had, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Road Less Stupid. And that was actually the premise of his whole book was about thinking time. And he has dozens of questions in there that are really thought provoking too. And you read some of those questions and it's like, wow, that's so simple, but it's so profound. And I, again, I think it's something that we can translate into conversations with our clients too, because, you know, depending on the question that you ask, it could completely push somebody in a different direction and make th- people think about something that they hadn't thought of before. And people do get kind of caught up. And the reality is, is most of the time we don't change, you know, we just kind of do what we're doing and are on a certain trajectory until that gets questioned. And when we actually have to sit and question something, then that could lead to a completely different decision. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, I'm always trying to find ways to be better. And I think that that's a, such a good actionable tip that can be done. And, you know, on the book side of it, you know, I got in, my friend introduced me to the concept of just reading multiple books. I always thought I had to start the book and finish the book. And it always hindered me to getting through the book because I was so, you know, it was daunting. I'd find lulls in the book and I'd really want to get to this section. And so he was like, you know, this, just go read multiple books and just look at the sections you want and read them and go back. Don't feel like you're obligated. And it's made reading so much more fun. And I read, you know, three to four books at a time, but I'm just bouncing around them and I get good ideas from them that I wouldn't have gotten if I was like, because I, it takes time to read a book. So, you know, just another idea to put on your, you know, on your list that maybe it will help you with some of those things as well. And so I want to switch gears for a little bit because I, I do want to get, let you get back to serving your clients that you do uh, every day. This industry, we talked about it, has a ton of innovation happening. And there's a lot of trends happening in this industry that are talked about in the headlines, right? You know, you, I can think about it right now. I, I just walked by CNBC on the way to the studio here and, you know, crypto is all over the headlines, right? So here's my question. What is the biggest trend that is talked about in this industry that you disagree with? Well, I don't know if it's a unique challenge to right now, but I, I think getting caught up in in trends, and it's not to say that we should ignore trends. It's not to say that we should throw cryptocurrency out the window and it never has a place in a portfolio. I think it's important to understand these things, but so oftentimes 
there's the latest fad, whatever it is. And then the risk, of course, is that we put too much concentration on it. So I, I think cryptocurrency could be guilty of that. I think there's always a bubble someplace. But you know, other times there's been tech stocks, it's been real estate. It's not getting caught up and getting so focused on one sector. I think that's a, a huge thing. I think from a from a practice management standpoint, I think it's also just making sure that we're articulating our value. And again, this isn't necessarily a new issue, but it always keeps coming up is performance, investment performance, and and trying to sell our value by investment performance or past performance that somebody's gotten on their portfolios. And I think anybody who's honest will tell you they have good years, they've got bad years. And there's a lots of different ways you can build portfolios and you know, kind of design people's asset allocation. But at the end of the day, there's only so much we can control there. And there's a huge amount of value that we're providing on things that are not the investment portfolio, at least from a design standpoint. If you use one mutual fund versus the other, in the end, if you hold on to them long enough, they're probably not going to be that far different. Yet somebody's decision as far as how much they put into their 401k, or do they do the Roth 401k or the traditional 401k, uh, or do they freak out and cash out of, of their beautiful diversified portfolio because you know, the markets drop 10, 20, 30%. Those are the big decision points that will have just massive implications over time. Tax considerations, estate considerations, all those areas. Again, there's these big, big decisions that we know because we see these situations every day, right? We're having these conversations with people and understand the implications after somebody dies or after somebody blows out of their portfolio because they panic. Huge, huge consequences. So I, I think just going back and focusing on what it is that we're really good at and what our true value is. Gosh, you couldn't pre you could preach that and I'd let you preach and preach and preach that for we could I'll let this podcast go for hours. I couldn't agree more <laughs> with that. I mean that is I think that advisors are finding themselves stuck in this battle with the with you know the robos and the fee compression that that they're questioning their value and I tell them and I've written it on on social a lot. I talk about it on this podcast don't question your value as an advisor. You are valuable and people are willing to pay for that value because they know how valuable you are. And we just got to get back to what is valuable and we got to get away from this 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 trend or this this whatever is happening, this movement that is all focused on investment performance. It doesn't that is not what people value. People value the relationship, they value the trust, they value the behavioral aspect of helping from a psychological standpoint of navigating. And that's where your value is and focus on doing that because that's what you can control. And you, if you build a good asset allocation, you know, it's going to go up, you know, it's going to go down, but you know that if you keep people from stepping in their own way that you're going to do well. So gosh, that is so spot on. And I want to talk about it more, but I, I know that we, we, we've got, we've got to keep, keep chugging along. And, and I, I want to flip that question. And I think it may be this value thing. It could be that answer too, but you know, what's one of those trends that you see happening in the industry from your seat and from your perspective that really isn't getting enough publicity, right? That, that, that isn't getting enough people talking about it, but is something that's going to be huge. You know, I'd, and it's, it's crazy, but I, I think, and to me, it's just bizarre that this is still a unique value proposition, but I think having somebody who actually is doing comprehensive financial planning because everybody says that they do. You go to any financial website and they, oh yeah, we do financial planning and we do comprehensive, holistic planning, whatever words that you want to use. Yet when we sit down with prospective clients and and they end up joining us, that ends up being the value proposition. And they say, that's great. We've talked to five different firms. We're working with this other firm right now and they don't do what you guys are doing. And 
you know, I, I'm happy that they're joining us and everything, but after the fact, I just kind of sit there and shake my head. How could this be that unique of a value proposition? And I think the reality is, is just that most people are not truly doing comprehensive financial planning. They're really not holistic in their approach. They may be able to answer questions, you know, that sort of thing. It might be if the client raises their hand and asks a question, but I'm convinced that vast majority of whatever you want to call us, you know, investment professionals, financial advisors, uh, vast majority of people are really just investment advisors. It's not to say it's not important. That's a very important part of the the process is the investments, but there's just so much more. Like you said, there's just so much more that we do. And it's in those key decision points. There's key moments when somebody's spouse passes away, you know, when somebody's trying to figure out what do they do with their 401k dollars? How do they allocate that? Do I pay off my debt or do I not pay off my debt? Do I make this massive investment into this piece of real estate or not? Those are big, big trajectory changers, right? Those decision points. And Mm -hmm. those are going to have much bigger implications, I think, than, again, whether you pick a X index fund or Y index fund, not to say it's not important, but way too much focus, I think, on investments, not enough focus on planning. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of advisors that always talk about, hey, I am, I do financial planning. I do X, Y, and Z. I do holistic. But in reality, they don't. It's very surface level, right? And I think that that's the challenge that, that we've talked about on this podcast a lot is that we're going to have to do more, right? If you say you do financial planning, you're probably going to have to go deeper, which means that it's going to take more time, which means that you need to figure yes. out how to scale yourself operational efficiency, whatever it is, you've got to go deeper because people are going to expect it more and more. And you're probably going to have to do it all within the same fee, which is why the theme is more margin compression than uh, than fee compression from that standpoint. Yeah, um, I think so too. I, I think ultimately more, and we, we're seeing this happen already, but more is going to be delivered or is going to need to be delivered for the fee that we're charging in the future. People are going to need to see more and more value from it. Or I think what's going to happen is the people who are only doing the investments, they're going to have to come down in price. Just gradually, it's going to get forced lower and lower and lower unless they're able to add more value. Of course, you could say that about any business, right? Is is that whoever adds the most value ultimately is going to get the majority of the business. And so that puts us in a wonderful place. The one trick ponies are going to have to lower their fee. They are the ones that have to be worried about fee compression. The ones that are more uh, holistic and, and multifaceted and omni-channel and such, they're going to be able to uh, keep their fee the same and, and they don't have to worry about fee compression, but they do have to worry about margin compression. So two, I want to ask one quick question before I get to my last question that I always ask on every podcast, because this has been a really amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I, I think that you're one of the advisors that really focuses on different ideas around growth, right? That's the biggest challenge that any financial advisor has. In the way that you market, you have your own podcast, you do a ton of content marketing. You know, what have you tried within the marketing approach that works? Because I think that every advisor is always searching for how to grow more. Um, and there's enough business out there for all of us to be successful. And so what what has worked for you? What have you tried that hasn't worked? What are some of those nuggets that that people can maybe hinge hinge on or latch on to and really kind of go and help their marketing efforts? Yeah, I think and for any business and certainly the financial advisory business is no exception is that referrals are always the best marketing you can do because it's it's a lot less expensive first of all and it's also a great filter I found because even if somebody has a, a bunch of money if they're a jerk it's not worth it. And so it, at the end of the day, I think it, you know our COI centers of influence, our clients are a great filtering mechanism, and they end up delivering a lot of great clients for us. So still, that's the majority of how we're growing right now is just people know people, and they tend to know people like them. If they're wealthy, they probably have wealth too. So that's always going to be the core of what we do. 
But I think coupled with that, there's kind of a second component to it. And it is marketing is the fact that people, so let's say that, that somebody refers their friend. Most of the time I found, if I'm able to trace it back, most of the time, it's not that they refer their friend and their friend picks up the phone right away and says, Hey, you know, I'd like to come talk to you. They go to our website and then they kind of check out what we're doing. They might go to our social media. Oh, they've got a podcast. I think those are all huge credibility builders because it's showing that we're active, we're doing stuff. They they can see that, okay, these guys are still growing. I, I kind of like the idea. These guys are challenging themselves. They're, they're growing. They're adding a lot of value for their clients. So it's kind of the proof. To me, the, the marketing that we're doing is almost like the proof to those prospective clients that are kind of poking around that we actually are going to do and we're doing what we say we're going to do. Yep. It's the social proof. I love that. And you're doing a great job at that for sure. So if anybody wants to figure out how to do it, go follow Josh Nelson and you'll see a lot of the great stuff that he's doing. So I want to wrap this up with the same question that I always ask at the end of every every podcast. And the background of this question is really in the hinges on the idea that our industry has been talking about a lot of uh, firms needing to change for years. I mean, decades. I remember going to conferences and everybody's like, well, the next gen this, the next gen that. If you don't do it, you're going to be obsolete. And we've always talked about it, right? And adopting new technologies. But many advisors haven't done any of it and they've continued to grow. And so my question gets to is why is our industry going to be forced to change, right? Why is now the time that advisors must change? Or do you not think that they do? But I'm always intrigued. What's going to be that impetus to where firms are going to be like, Ah, I really now have to do this that has been talked about forever that I just have been able to push off because I've been constantly growing. Yeah, that's a, a good point. I think it's a little bit of both. For people who aren't interested in growing, I don't know that they will be forced to change. I think they might have some good client relationships. Their clients trust them with whatever they're delivering. Maybe it's not great, but whatever they're delivering, the clients trust them and they're there for life. That being said, are they going to be able to attract new clients and grow? Are they going to be able to backfill those clients as they pass away and move on? Probably not. And you know, maybe they don't care. Maybe it's an advisor that's just going to have a lifestyle practice and it'll just be this trajectory right into the ground someday. Will they have much of a sellable asset? No, um, they won't. But again, maybe they don't care. Maybe they want to kind of work as little as possible. And I know people like this. I'm sure you know people like this, that basically they've got their clients. Mm -hmm. They're happy with that. They want to work as least as little as possible at, at this point. So they, I don't think they'll be forced to change. Uh, I think for people who want to grow though, absolutely. I think if, if you're not a, a heavy adopter of technology and, and staying up on things and constantly you know, improving, we have uh, we, we followed the principle of Kanai within our firm, constant and never-ending improvement. And we're always circling back to different areas of the firm, making sure that we're always kind of looking at stuff. How do we make it better? How do we make it better? Because I, I think for firms that don't have that mentality, it's not going to happen overnight. And let's face it, most people don't change. We don't change unless it gets painful enough. So oftentimes it's just kind of this slow progression like inflation that over time, you know, our practices are going to be yeah. deflating because it, you're, you're, you're not seeing it. You're not seeing it on a day-to-day -day basis, how it might be hurting you. So I, I think ultimately, you know, it, it's people who yeah. want to grow, I think will be forced to change. People that are in the business already, they may not have to, and they may not care. Yeah. That's a really good point, right? I mean, it, it, it's like you're, you're kind of just bucketing up the types of advisors, right? And, and I think everybody's tried to throw it on as a blanket statement for the entire industry, and that's not the right way, right? If you want to just be, you know, you know, slowly fade away into the sunset, then you're fine. You may not have to ever change. You don't have to worry about any of these adoptions, and that's okay. 
But if you do want to grow, then you will have to change because there's people that are out there really iterating on their business process and their value and, and how they market and everything of that nature. And you're going to be forced because you're going to be following the herd and they're going to be fo- running faster and faster. So I think that's a really good point. Um, well, Josh, you know, you had me on your podcast, which I extremely, I was really appreciative of, and I'm happy that I, that we were able to have you on our podcast because I found Absolutely. this conversation just both just great conversations. Right? Yeah, really great conversations. And if if there's people out there that want to follow you, find you, talk with you. How do they get in touch with you? Yeah, easiest way uh, is to check out the podcast. That's at wiserfinancialadvisor.com. So that'll take you to the podcast page. I, I find the podcast is great too, because people actually get to hear from us directly as opposed mm-hmm. to reading stuff in these days. Let's face it, most people aren't going to read anything. So uh, the podcast is a great way. It's almost like we get to have a direct conversation with people every week. Yeah. Well, what are you talking about? We just talked about how to read more books and how to use Audible, right? So people are going to start to read, right? We just got to figure out how to have all of our blogs into an Audible uh, format so that they can read it. So maybe the next podcast is just us reading our own blogs. uh, (laughs) That's like a part of the podcast, right? True. Well, Josh, thanks so much for your contribution to the industry, for everything you're doing for the clients and and for taking some time out of your day to, to spend with us here on Bridging the Gap. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 